0: I'm glad morning when this life is over
1: promise for the believer. Amen. We've got a, a rapture that we're a part of. We're looking forward to We appreciate that we're in the midst of it. Amen. Amen. I just want to make a quick announcement before I go too far, otherwise I'll forget. This Friday on uh, December 9th, we've, we've rented a gymnasium for the Sunday school and for the young people. Um, it will just be down at the St. Francis Xavier gym, uh, between 7 and 8 p.m., the Sunday school children will be able to come and enjoy some time together to play games. So if you have Sunday school-aged children, um, and you'd like them to come and be able to enjoy some time together between 7 and 8 p.m. at St. Francis Xavier, that's just down the avenue on 163rd Street, the ages, for, between ages 4 to 12. Uh, if you need more information than that, feel free to contact myself and and or Brother Tito even, and we'll uh, make sure you get there. Amen. That sound all right? Oh, all right. You never get amens with announcements. I don't like doing announcements, you know. <laughs> There's young people's gymnasium after the Sunday school children, so the Sunday school children have it from seven to eight, the young people have it from eight to ten, so... We just assume the young people have two, uh, double the energy as the as the Sunday school children. So, hey, let's take our Bibles together. Turn to Second Corinthians. Thank you, musicians. God bless you. Bless you, buddy. They have more of a tan already. Hey, Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 11.. <clears throat> Amen. Let's just bow our heads together, maybe, and approach the throne of grace first. When they want to lift their hand and say, Lord, I I would like you to come speak to me this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, it's my own hands are raised, Lord. And Father, we desire you to come and speak, Lord. And it's on our hearts. It's why we've gathered here together, not to see each other, Lord, but to see you. Lord, you're the author of life. You're the giver of every good gift, Lord. Without you, Lord, there is nothing. For by you are all things made and for you was it made, Lord. and Father, we want to give you the glory and the honor that you are worthy of. We thank you, Lord, for the songs that we could sing and to glorify your name. But Lord, we ask that you would come and glorify thyself again. By thy own word, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says, For I am jealous over you, with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through the subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Amen. May the Lord have blessing to the word. You may have your seats. Amen. I want to just approach a subject and, um, uh, this morning, and, and the Lord just laid on my heart in the past couple of weeks, and I, I can't seem to get away from it, but I'd like to approach a subject of jealousy this morning, but I want to approach it more, mostly from a perspective of, a, of God and, and a godly jealousy than from a spirit of jealousy, though perhaps we'll go into that a little bit, but not very much at this time. And often the Bible, in Bible language, as, as you can study the Bible, if you'd read and, and study what the word jealousy means and take it back into the Hebrew and Greek and different things, the word jealousy and zeal and sometimes even envy would be interchangeable words, where they'd often be used, those three different words in the English, but in the Hebrew, it would often be the same word. And, and when it would speak of, of being, when he would speak of being a jealous God, as he would talk about even in Exodus, as he'd speak to Moses and say, "I'm the Lord, thy God, I am a jealous God." And he would, he would be speaking of it in this way, and he'd often be speaking that he's zealous over his people to perform His word. And he's zealous over his people and his word. And, but jealousy would have a definition in Second Corinthians chapter 11 as we read it there in verse 2 where Paul would write. It's actually the only time in the New Testament the word jealous is even used. And he says that I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, and Paul is writing, and, and he's trying to use words to express that his zeal for the Church of Jesus Christ with a fervency and an excitement to see the Word of God performed in the life of the individual. And he says in this way, he says, that "Really, I'm jealous that you would stay true to the Word at all costs." And, and, and jealousy even even goes into a measure of enthusiasm and a measure of zeal and a measure that, that it would be uh, jealousy is a love of zeal. So it's not just to be zealous, but it's that I love to be zealous. And we know the call today even in the Laodicean church age would be be zealous therefore and repent. And it would talk about it in that way, as saying, you know, in jealousy, it would say, I have a love of zeal, not just that I happen to have zeal once in a while, but I enjoy being zealous for the things of God. And, 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 uh, <clears throat> and it would talk about zealous, not just of man for God, but of man for the house of God and of God for his people. And, and, and there's an excitement even, it can bring us to anger, and jealousy has that, that way of going, and maybe we'll take a, a step in this direction, because jealousy has changed its definition over the, the years, as, as, as I talked about what it would be in, in Bible language, but then as we, as we look and it would change its definition throughout the ages, it became a word in the, in the dark ages where it would begin to, to become a, a word that would lean to suspicion, that it would offer itself to suspicion. To be jealous was to be suspicious of another by attraction and yet without reasonable cause. To be jealous of somebody because you have a feeling over them, but you don't have reasonable cause to be suspicious of them. In other words, there's nothing that your thoughts are based in, but it's based in an imagination, an imaginary thought. And today we often use jealousy to describe envy or even extreme envy in a manner that it could even ruin a relationship, in which you become a boy would become jealous over a girl, or a girl over a boy, or, or in some way like that, or even a man of his friend, or a woman of her friend, and they become jealous over it. And a jealousy is even a spirit that it can cripple one's grasp on reality because it, it, it's, it's based often in imaginative thoughts where you think something's happening when it's really not happening, or you think something because you have this feeling towards an individual, surely there's somebody else that has that feeling. Therefore, I need to protect them, and I need to put walls around them, and I need to be sure that they never are exposed to somebody else, and that becomes a toxic jealousy. And, and, but we could even allow the devil to put a, a jealous spirit on us in a, in a spiritual realm in which we can think, oh, I'll never be used like somebody else is used. Or I'll never, I'll never amount to what God wants me to be amount to. Or I'm just not as gifted as someone else is gifted. And we become jealous of their gifts. We become jealous of how God is using somebody else. But in reality, it's the devil trying to say, you'll never be what God wants you to be. But that's not what God has designed. That's not how God designed it. He placed gifts in the body. He placed them there for a reason. And it's for our benefit, not for us to be jealous one of another. And often we'll stop the moving of God because we are so consumed with who's doing it. Instead of being consumed with the fact that God is moving and we ought to be able to step in behind it and allow the Lord also to move in us. Amen. It was never by any one person's ability that we would come to the perfection of the body of Christ. It was never by a gift that we would come to perfection. Even though it was gifts that was placed in the body, that was pastors and evangelists and teachers and prophets and apostles, that they were placed in the body for our perfecting. But it wasn't that the gifts perfected. It was that the the gift was they could get out of the way and allow God to come and do the perfecting. Amen. Because the perfection of the body is based on the blood of Jesus Christ. It's based on the fact that he's able to wash us and cleanse us of all uncleanliness and sin. And and, and it is our ability, and every one of us have this incredible ability, and that is to surrender. That's not a gift. It doesn't take a gift to be able to surrender. You put anyone at, 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 at the point of a weapon where they can't control and they realize it's lost, it's over. You put someone at gunpoint, they'll raise their hands and surrender. They suddenly have an ability, no matter how strong or how great they are, they have this ability to surrender. But when you recognize that I can't do it on my own, we need to recognize, but we do have an ability, and that's to raise our hands and say, Lord, I surrender to you. I can't fight this anymore. I can't go down this way anymore. I need Jesus Christ to take control. And godly jealousy, as Paul would be into write, I'm jealous over you, not just with a jealousy of a man, but with a godly Jealousy. And he's writing not just to the Corinthians, but to the church in the Ephesian church age. As he says, he's the messenger to the Ephesian church age. And he's not just writing to a certain generation. He's writing to all of the 120 years of it. And he's writing in this way saying, uh, there's something within me that I desire because you're my children and I've espoused you to Christ. And I want you to be a, a chaste virgin to Christ. And so I'm God. I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I fear, and this is not a jealousy based on something that is imaginative. This is a jealousy based on something that we know Satan desires to creep in and to corrupt our minds. So he says, because I know someone else wants you for a bride, I want to espouse you to Christ as a bride, and I'm jealous over you, so I've taken and I've placed boundaries around you by the word of God to be sure that the devil was not able to corrupt your minds. As we would write, even in in Exodus, as I quoted Exodus chapter 34, where where God would begin to speak through Moses and say, for thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, oh my, he is a jealous God. He says, Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifices unto their gods, and one shall call thee, and thou shalt eat of his sacrifice. What's he saying? I'm a jealous God, because I see that there are other gods out there that desire to take your worship from me, and desire to put it onto something else. He says, So I'm a jealous God, that I'm certain that I don't want you to be whoring after those other gods. Amen, he's speaking that his jealousy over us is that that the people of Israel would adhere to the word of God and that their worship would be exclusively unto him and him alone. But in the New Testament, as I said, the word jealousy is only used one time and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse two, or twice, I guess, because it's used twice in the same verse. But because under the Old Covenant and under the Old Testament, there was the law and God was jealous over that worshiper adhering to the law. That, but under the new covenant, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, it's to take away our sins, and we are we could be that we could be espoused to Christ. His jealousy over us became the word of the hour. Instead of it being the law and adherence to the law, that we would rather, that we would be a virgin until he would have the time and the right place to put his seed word in a virgin bedding ground. Under the old covenant, it was a jealousy to adhere to the law. But under the new covenant, it was a jealousy to manifest the word that he wanted to see the Word of God live in the individual, not just become a set of rules of do's and don'ts, and not just a boundary based on walls, but a boundary based on the inside that says, I can't go because the Spirit in me doesn't desire to go outside of the Word of God. In Psalms chapter 69 and verse 9, it says, so David would write and said, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Amen. Amen. That he loved the zeal. It wasn't that it just, well, I was zealous once in a while. But it's eaten me up. In other words, it's taken control of my being. It's taken control of my desires, my thoughts, my affections, my conscience. Everything that's within me is about the zeal to be in the house of God. To be about the Father's business. The Ephesian church age, Brother Branham would take and he would talk about this scripture in, second, in, in 2 Corinthians eleven too, I'm jealous of you with God, a godly jealousy to have espoused you to one husband. He says, Paul has the means. Paul had been the means of bringing in multitudes of the Gentile sheep. Listen, Paul had been the means. He was the one that God was using to bring multitudes of the Gentile sheep. He fed them, he cared for them until they brought forth righteous fruit and were prepared to meet the Lord as a part of the Gentile bride. So in other words, it was Paul's message in that day that was gonna bring the people into a place that God would accept them as his bride. Amen, he fed them and he clothed them and he made sure that they were ready to be presented to the King. And he made sure that it was the right word. It was exactly what God wanted them to be clothed in. Amen. Amen. And he, in the Pergamean church, age, he would write and say that judging the 12 tribes of Israel, then remember Paul was given a special promise. That of presenting the people of the bride in his day to Jesus. That was what Paul's special promise was that he would present the bride of Christ in the Ephesian church age. And the different church age messengers would present their bride through the different ages. But he would talk about it and say, says, for I have espoused you. And he says, so it will be with every messenger who has been faithful to the word of his hour and his age. So it will be in the last days. It will be the same special reward that was given Paul I think most of you remember how I said that and how it was always, uh, been afraid to die lest I should meet the Lord and he should not be pleased with me as I've failed him so many times. So Brother Brown now takes it off of Paul and brings it right personal to the present day where he recognizes saying, I'm the church age messenger to the Laodicean church age. I've got a special promise that I need to present a bride to the the Lord Jesus Christ from the Laodicean church age. So what did he do? He began to lay in the word for the bride to be clothed so that she would be able to be pleasing to the Lord. Amen, and it was the only way because God is a jealous God. He's not going to accept something else. He's only going to accept what he sent for the bride to be clothed, in, and that's what he'll accept her as. He says, I'm here, and I'm trying to help you. I love you. The bride says, you're my children that I've begotten to Christ. I claim every one of you, I claim you tonight, I claim you all the time, I always claim you and that as my brother and sister, you're my children, I'm your father in the gospel. In one place he calls us his honeys, (laughs) hallelujah. And then he says, this he says, "You're my children, I'm the father in the gospel, not father like a priest." He says, "But I'm your father in the gospel, as Paul said, "I've begotten you to Christ." He says, "Now I espouse you to Christ that's engaged you to Christ as a chaste virgin." And then he starts this cry, he says, "Don't let me down. Don't let me down." He repeats it twice. He says, "You stay a chaste virgin." He says, how will I do it, Brother Bradham? Stay right with the word. Live clean and pure. Have nothing to do with the things of the world. If, if the love of it's in your heart, say, oh, Jesus, please take this away from me. I don't want to be like that. No, I don't mean just to be some person. In saying this, he says, I mean to be a real, genuine believer. Believe Jesus Christ. Live for him every day. Don't do no evil. Hallelujah. He says, Listen, this is what he see. He begins to put his place out to us and say, I'm your heaven, I'm your spiritual father in the gospel, and I've espoused you to Christ. Yes. Amen. This isn't anything new to us. He's espoused us to Christ, and he says, But don't let me down. Yes. Oh my, don't let the prophet down. Why? Don't let the message down to say, Well, it's just not, not, not all there. Uh, well, let me just continue on, and we'll come back to it. I've espoused you to Christ to stay a chaste virgin. Don't just accept any doctrine that comes along. Any emotion that comes along and it just seems so nice so we'll just jump into it. No, make sure. Make sure it runs with the message. Make sure it runs with the scripture. Make sure it runs all the way through and it's not just a little portion here and a little portion there. How's it gonna happen We can look at Isaiah chapter nine. You can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59 while I read Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine says, this is a nice Christmas message. It says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. We're in December now, so I can preach this, right? It says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Oh, glory be to God. But he says, how will this happen? He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Because he's a jealous God, he will be sure to make sure his word does not return unto him void. That he will bring to pass exactly what he's promised to do. And we know that in the three and a half years that he was here in his corporal body, this was not all manifested. Part of it was left for you and I. Part of it was left for a second coming. Amen. To establish it with judgment and justice. Isaiah 59 I have to put a bookmark in there. There we go. 59 and verse 15 says, Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. That is literally they're describing today. If you'll depart from evil, you make yourself prey for the world. He said and the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man and wondered why there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness it sustained him. Oh my, how the Lord would be grieved by this to recognize and see there's no intercessor among men. We have an intercessor, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe God is looking down to the bride to say, is there intercessors today that will also pick up the work of the Holy Ghost and be conduits in which I can work and intercede on one another's behalf? And he says in verse 17, says, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. This is not just the Lord. This is talking about the believer, saying he's low looking for someone that he can put a breastplate of righteousness on, someone he can have a helmet of salvation on, someone he can put a cloak of zeal on that they can be clothed, that what people see from the outside is that they're zealous for the things of God. According to their deeds, according to he will repay fury uh, to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Hallelujah, and we've preached this so many times before. It's not just that God comes in in some mystic way and raises up his spirit, but God gets an individual that he can use, and by that person, raises up a standard against the enemy. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, the bride. Oh, it is the rising of the sun. He says this, and unto them shall that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of thy mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forevermore. So it wasn't just to the ones that received it. He says, listen, it's not just going to not depart out of your mouth, but rather it's to your seed. And to your seed, seed. What did God love so much about Abraham that he knew Abraham would take his seed on his lap and teach them the ways of God. And he would take his seed, seed, and his seed, 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 and take them upon their lap. And he would begin to teach them about the ways of God. And God still loves us today when we're not just so inclusive in ourselves and so jealous over the revelation that God has given us that we refuse to let it out to others, but rather that we would take our children and our children's children, our brothers and our sisters and begin to teach them what God has done. He says, I mean this, the burning zeal of God. Nothing can stop it. Look at that Hebrews chapter 11 there where there was just one nod to them patriarchs from God. They subdued kingdoms, they wrought righteousness, they stopped the lion's mouth, they escaped the fire and the things that they'd done through faith by just one nod from God. Oh, hallelujah. If you go under the Old Covenant, and the Old Testament, you begin to read about the heroes of faith and you see where they failed the law. And you see the times where they kept the law. But when the blood of Jesus was applied and you get under the new covenant and you begin to see it in, Revelation, in Hebrews chapter 11 and God begins to talk about the same ones, the same one of Abraham who had had Hagar and get Ishmael and he looks under the covenant and he says, and he didn't stagger at the promise of God. And he looks under there and he says, oh, but he was strong in faith. And he looks at Noah and he says, Noah, by faith, he built an ark for the saving of his household. And he looks at Enoch, he says, Enoch, he had faith in God. And he looks at different ones, even Jephthah, a man who promised to slay his own daughter. But he says, I, I, I love him. He's a man of faith. Yeah. What a God. Yeah. The heroes of faith. What a beautiful thing it is. It doesn't do away with adherence to the law, but rather it magnifies it. Because Christ was the magnification of the law. But instead of do's and don'ts, it became a manifestation of the law. It became the Word begin to live. Instead of it becoming borders, instead of it becoming just one time or something happened. And we can look at David, how there were so many times of faith, but there was also so many times where he failed. Amen. But we could look at him and realize that God was wanting us to bring us from that into a life that would be more than an overcomer that we wouldn't fail the way he failed anymore because it would be him and us living the life out rather than us trying to adhere to something. It would be him bringing the adherence by himself. Oh, my. It becomes a living truth. We sing that song. We've come back to the absolute come back to living truth back to where there's a right and there's a wrong not to where there's just a bunch of gray areas and we're really not too sure no there's a right and there is a wrong there is a true and there is a false vine amen there is a god and there is a devil there is a heaven there is a hell hell is hot and heaven is high as a matter of fact it's not just going to get in on a whim you got to give yourself to god He says the spoken word is the original seed he says that's one he says taking one word of God that's where so many evangelists crack up he says we'll get to it later but he's then he gets to it right away where he says oh we believe this and we'll take that and they'll believe that one word and they make that one word work but what about the other end of it what about the rest of it what about the, the 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 next paragraph We do that so many times and we ought to be careful as ministers and it's something that's just burned on my heart. We ought to always be careful that we don't just take one paragraph in the message and we just major on that and we realize that there's more to it. I'm not going to go through a bunch of examples, but I could, but it would just cause confusion because there is a lot of times where it happens where you take just a sentence and, oh, this is glorious, but you forget Okay, I'll take one example. I heard it recently where a brother began to preach, a wonderful brother. I love and respect him, but he began to preach and to talk about, say, that, that, oh, one sister had a question that, uh, will my children be in the rapture? And he said, Brother Brown says, yes, yes, yes. And he just carried on preaching. Well, Brother Brown did say, yes, yes, but there's four times in the message that Brother Brown talks about it. And every time he qualifies it and says, if they're seed, right. if they're called of God. It's not just because you're a believer, all of a sudden your children are going to go in the rapture if they're not of age. No. He says, if they're seed of God, which I believe, and you need to have faith, thy and thy house shall be saved. It's based on your faith. Yes. It's not just yes, 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 and everything's wonderful. You've got to take all of it together. Yes. 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 Because the scripture says, blessed is he that does all of his biddings. All of his commandments, see, he says he'll have to enter the he'll have a right to enter into the tree of life when he does all of his biddings. Not a part of it, not take this and leave that out. Take all of it, because that'll give you a right to enter in. Because without our sorcerers, dogs, whoremongers, and so forth. Just think, is how perverted that we can make the real true word. That's from the message of thirst, 1965. He says, how that they can say, oh, we believe the Bible, but not this. We don't believe this. We believe this This was was for another age. We know Brother Adam said he was dealing a lot with Mark chapter 16, where they would take it from the eighth verse on, and that, that wasn't really inspired and things. He says, no, it was all inspired. It was either all inspired or it all wasn't inspired. He's listening he says, you want to take it, we believe this and don't believe that, we believe this or that. He says, because some denomination has twisted their minds into a cesspool. He says, but Jesus said, Whosoever take one word out of this or add one word to it, his part shall be taken from the book of life. This is the result of tampering with the word of God. That's a denominational spirit. We don't have to call ourselves a denomination. A denominational spirit is to tamper with the word of God, to bog down on one thing and say, this is it. If you got this, you got it. If you don't got this, you don't got it. But rather, he says, "That's that." you just take that and you just have your little box and you put God in there and say, this is what it's all about. He says that you're going to twist your mind into a cesspool of devil ideas. Instead of becoming the manifested eternal life, it becomes a dead, stinking cesspool if you tamper with the word of God. If you go back with me for a minute to 2 Corinthians, we read what happened in Second Corinthians chapter 11 and how Paul begins to talk. He started on verse 1, it says, bear with me in my folly. Indeed, bear with me just a little bit because he's talking about, he's just trying to express to them how he's their spiritual father, and he's espoused them to Christ. And regardless, he's done everything he can just to be a godly example among them. But if you go back into chapter 10, this comes right after he begins to speak in verse 5 and 6, where he says, casting down, or back up to verse 4, or verse 3, he says, For we walk in, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Hallelujah. So even though in in the new covenant it's, it's not that we have perfect adherence to the law that pleases God, but rather the manifestation of the word for your day is what's pleasing to God. But he says it's still, there's a measure of obedience because you need to bring not just your deeds, but bring every thought, yeah. captivity to Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, in having in readiness to revenge all disobedience. Right. When your obedience is fulfilled. So in other words, he takes exactly what Jesus said, where he said, if you've got a moat in your own eye, don't try and pick the beam out of your brother's eye. He says, when you've fulfilled obedience, then you have a right to revenge disobedience. Then you have a right to make sure others are doing what's right and true. As he begins to go on down through the chapter, he begins to talk about making sure you're living to your measure. What God has given you, live to that. And in verse 18 he would he would write and say for not that for not that he that commendeth himself is approved but whom the lord commendeth. Amen. Amen. So now he takes it from saying bring it all obedient and which is absolutely true. So he says listen because it's every thought and God looks on the hearts of man. Because uh, because we look at it as deeds and it's so easy to commend your peers when you see the way they dress, the way they act the way they're in church all the time. Or it's easy to disapprove them when they're not in church. It's easy to say things. You know, it's easy to look on the outside. But he says, it's not that we're, we're, we're commended of ourselves and that my deeds, because that's why Paul would take it and says, no, show me your, 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 your works by your faith. Show me the faith that you have in God, that you really have what it takes, that you've met God on the backside of the desert, that you really know him, and you know him in the power of his resurrection. Show me that. Yeah. Amen. And, and, and he begins to take, he says, but really, about whom the Lord commendeth, and that's what we want, that God would come and back it up. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what we received as, as, as a spiritual father today in the William Branham and the message that he had. It wasn't just that he preached a nice message. God did something so wonderful in that he made sure it came through a seventh-grade education because in doing so, he made sure it wasn't mixed with anything else. It wasn't mixed with any man's ideas because no one had inputted anything into Brother Branham. He just was a man of the wilderness that God called and put his word into him, and it wasn't mixed with anything else, and he could bring it out pure in that way so we could receive it as a pure, unadulterated gospel. Hallelujah, but it wasn't just that it was a nice and adulterated gospel, but it was that God backed it up. Yeah. That God commended it that said, this is what I'm talking about. He gave him a sign and said, this is the message that I'm blessing, that I'm proving to be the truth. This is what you need to be clothed in. Then, with with that in mind, that's when he gets into, I'm godly over you, I'm jealous over you, with a godly jealousy. And for the reason of it, there's a jealousy. For the reason of it, so that way, so your minds aren't corrupted from the simplicity. Look what Paul's saying. He says it isn't that 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 this serpent again would steal you away from the Holy Spirit, but rather. I'm concerned that because he chose the battleground of the mind, I'm concerned that he would corrupt your minds and make the simplicity of Christ a complicated affair. I'm concerned that he would take what really is such a simple thing to surrender and give your life to God and be filled with the Holy Spirit and stay there a chaste virgin till he puts his seed in you. It's that simple, dude. I'm concerned that he'll take that away from you and make it so complicated. He said that by that, and by that, be able to stop the working of the Holy Spirit in the church. <laughs>
0: Hallelujah!
1: I want to take this, this this quote, and this is what really has been burdened on my heart. is from the Ephesian Church Age and the Church Age book, and I've been trying to actually get away from it because it's very straight and very serious, but. Brother Bradham take the scripture in Revelations 2 and 4 and says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You say, well, that was to the Ephesian church age, Brother Andrew. That, that doesn't apply to us. We were, we're beyond that. No, this is always a danger. That's right. He says, to understand this, you must realize that the Spirit is not speaking just to the original saints of Ephesus alone. This message is to the entire age. It lasted 120 years. Its message then is to all generations in that span. He says, but now history keeps repeating itself. He says, in the generations of Israel, we see revival in one generation, only to see the fires fading in the next. And in the third generations, embers may be glowing slightly. But in the fourth generation, there's, there may be no vestige whatsoever of the original flame. Then God lights the fire again when the same process repeats. He says it's simply a manifestation of the truth that God has no grandchildren. Hallelujah. He doesn't have, still to this day, salvation is not passed on by natural birth. Any more than, it's, than there is any truth to apostolic succession. And we know there's no truth to that. I'm gonna skip some of it because I don't want to bog down in all the details. It Says the fervent desire. What happens when this happens? He says the fervent desire to please God, the passion to know his word. What's passion? It's zeal. The zeal to know his word, the crying for reaching out in the spirit, the intercession. It says all begins to fade. And instead of the church being on fire with the fire that God has, it begins to cool off and become a bit formal. That's what happened back there in the Ephesians. They were getting a bit formal. This says the abandonment to God was dying out. Think about that word for a minute. The abandonment. When you abandon something, you leave it completely behind. You don't keep going back to it. No, you've abandoned it. And the abandonment to God, we ought to have such an abandonment to God where we leave everything else completely behind. It's not, Lord, you touch me in this way, you touch me in this way. But you know, I see from my past there's still some good points. I'm going to abandon that completely to the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to work in me the way he sees fit and not keep trying to bring up the past anymore. But give abandonment to God. Stop trying to bring up all the psychology. Stop trying to bring up all the other thoughts of the world. All the politics. Politics has nothing to do with the bride of Christ. We're a spiritual bride, not a political bride. It doesn't matter what country you live in or where the politics are good or bad. For the bride, the politics are bad Everywhere. doesn't matter what country you're living in. The politics are set up against the bride of Christ. Because you know what? There's a little message called Satan's Eden. There's another one called God of this evil age. Why? But we know that the only reason they can't come at us is because the bride's still here. It's because there's an angel, a standing present. The mighty angel that holds back the four winds. Because Jesus Christ Himself has come down with an open book. His desire to be, be revealed in his bride. The abandonment to God, he says, if you've lost your first love, the abandonment to God has died out, and the people aren't too careful about what God thought of them anymore, but they begin to be careful about what the world thought of them. That is such a subtle influence of the enemy. It doesn't just happen like that. He doesn't say, well, listen, the, 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 the prime minister doesn't like you very much. You better straighten up. Well, we don't really care. But he makes it subtle. He gets in a little here, a little bit there. He puts his little hoof in and then just opens the door a little bit. Then he gets his elbow in. Then he gets his arm in. Then he gets his head in. Then he gets it a little bit subtly, just a little bit at a time to say, it really doesn't matter in this way. It really doesn't matter in that way to get the church thinking that they have to complete, compete And I know, we're, we're smarter than that, okay? We, we don't go around saying, you know what, there's a church down the road that's a Baptist church. We, we got to compete against them. We know we don't have to. But he'll bring it in and say, but there's a church that believes the message in the States. I'm not going to call anything specific. But they have got this gift going on. And their people are like that. You need to compete. Well, if you don't have it like that, you don't got the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you don't know what we know, if God's not doing what you're doing here, and you don't feel like we feel, oh my, it becomes a competition. Church to church, church to church. Until we're looking at churches across the city going, well, they're doing that. Why aren't we doing that? Oh, they're doing that, so therefore they're not as good as we are because we're doing this over here. That church down there, they got a real man of God, and we, a man, our preachers, (sighs) we get that way. But that's the workings of the devil because he knows if he can get us fighting each other. And he knows, and he's he's come to a place where we've come gelled inside of a body of Christ here, locally in the church. We've become comfortable in our local body, and that's good. But his tactics are so sneaky. That he wants to take it now. Okay, you won't get fight each other here. Well, I'll fight you against that church then. And I'll fight this brother against that brother. And they'll have brothers that'll just get together and they'll fight and argue and all these things. Where's the love of Christ in all of it? That's right. If we don't preach like that church, we don't have music like that church, he says, listen, the second generation coming up, just like Israel, they demanded a king like the other nations. Why? Because the fire of God under Samuel, that they were good with Samuel when the second generation come up. They didn't like that very much anymore. They weren't interested in the God ruling over them. They wanted a king like somebody else they saw. Oh my. I want a better preacher like that other preacher. Okay, I better carry on. When it thinks more of conforming to the world instead of conforming to God. Listen. If you want an emotional whoop-up of a church service, there's Pentecostal churches that do it better than any message church will ever do it. If that's what you want, it's okay. I'd rather you didn't go, but if that's what you want, there's Pentecostal churches that'll do it better. He says, listen, we ought not to be concerned with conforming to the world. He says, when it thinks more of conforming to the world than conforming to God, it isn't long until they, they stop doing things they used to do and start doing things they wouldn't do initially. It isn't long before they stop doing things that they felt so moved on their heart, that first generation that came out and realized this is the truth and they were burning for souls and they were crying out for loss and they were prayer meetings and they were having Bible studies and they were supporting the ministry so the ministry could go out and make sure the the word was getting out to the local area and to those around and out to the mission field and and, and then it came and it said, they realized oh you know what we need we need more programs our young peoples ought not to just be a church service it should be a program we should get together and have more fun together Oh, God have mercy. When did we care what the world thought of us more than what God thought of us? When did we care more about fellowship with each other than fellowship with God? That's right. They changed. It begins to go down. They, they begin to change their manner of dress. Used to be they'd dress in real long skirts. The brothers wouldn't even think of putting on a pair of shorts. The brothers wouldn't even think of having some long moppy haircut, perm going on and things like that. Sisters wouldn't even think of dyeing their hair. Why? Because it was just it was real to them. They loved the Lord. But then it became oh, that's all frumpy now. That's the way my grandma did it. Yeah, that was that first generation. They get lax. That's even what the word Ephesians mean, relaxed and drifting. It says the cycle of revival and death has never failed. All you have to do is recall the last move of God in the spirit when men and women dressed like Christians, went to church, prayed all night, took to the street corners and weren't ashamed of the manifestations of the spirit. They left their old dead churches and worshiped in homes and old store buildings. They had Reality. What's it talking about? What does jealousy do? A jealous spirit will cripple your grasp on reality to where you think that a church building and a nicer one and a nicer program and a nicer thing, that's more real. That's a perversion of reality when he says the reality we need is the moving of the Holy Ghost in the church, in the people, and not be ashamed of it. Whether we're preaching it here or whether it's on the street corners or whether it's in the supermarket, wherever it is. Hallelujah, we ought to be able to see believers that go to manifested word, that go to living word, that go to other churches, restored word, and we ought to be able to shake their hands in the street, in the street corner, we ought to shake their hands in the supermarket, put our arms around and say, God bless you brother and sister, it doesn't matter to me if you're going to this church or that church, do you love the Lord? They had reality, but it didn't take too long till they got enough money to build better churches. Till they had put a choir instead of singing to God for themselves. So they put gowns on their choir. It just begins to snowball over and over. They organized the movement, ran it by man. They soon begin to read books that weren't fit to read. Listen, this this week I. I found there, there was a man that, he's kind of a rabbi or something, and he, he started doing commentaries on the first five books of the Bible. I thought, that'd be interesting, because I've been reading the first five books of the Bible, and I thought, man, that, that might actually help me and be interesting. And So I watched a podcast that somebody had him on, and one of the things he said, you know, he says, faith is always rational. And I went, hold on a second. Was it rational when Joshua said, sun stands still and moon hang there over Agilon? Was it rational when Noah said, build an ark and there never been rain come down from heaven? I begin to realize this man can write as many books as he wants. They ain't fit to read. I find out he wrote something called the rational Bible. I'd hate to read that one too. I like the irrational Bible because I got a God that does things that the human sense is irrational, but what God calls foolish, man calls great, and what man calls great, God calls foolishness. It Wasn't very rational when a man with a seventh grade education said, came out and said, I'm going to pray for kings and monarchs, and I'm going to pick this gospel around the world seven times. All the rational people said, really, you? Come on, get beside yourself but they had reality. I believe, Brother Brandon, when he's talking about, you forgive me, I'll go on a tangent here, when he's talking about books that aren't fit to read, he's not just talking about romance novels and comics and killings and all these things. He's talking about something that'll come so close to psychology and theology that'll take you and pervert the revelation that God put in your mind, because what is it? He says, I'm jealous of you with a godly jealousy, for I fear lest the devil, the serpent, through his subtlety, will corrupt your minds from the simplicity that is in Christ. And there's something that theology does, and it takes the simplicity and it corrupts it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it something so complicated till you could never really attain to it and we'll only know on the other side. God have mercy. He says they let down the bars and the goats come in and took over. The cry of joy was gone. The freedom of the spirit was gone. Oh, they kept it with a form but the fire had died out and the blackness of ashes is about all that's left. Oh, let me say what we need today. And what I believe we have is a ministry that is calling you back to stay with your first love. That's our desire. That's our burden on our heart. That's why the spirit and the bride are saying the same thing, saying, Come back to your first love. Don't be tossed about with all these other husbands that's pulling you this way and that way. Come to Jesus. Let's go to Esther chapter 2, if you will. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Esther, we know in Ezra chapter 1, the king had a feast. And he called Vashti. And Vashti refused to come, she was busy with all the other churches. She was busy competing with everybody else and having a great big time and a hooah and a whoop up. She refused to come when the king said, "Won't you come to me?" We ought to never be ashamed of him. She got ashamed of the king. The king said, "I want to show your beauty to everybody else. I want to call you before the sons of God and I want to show you the, your, show them all your beauty." And she said, what "Am I just a toy to you?" We ought to never be ashamed. Of Jesus Christ. The fact that he thinks I'm beautiful, there ain't nothing better. But if we go down into chapter 2 and verse 15, we know that the virgins were called and they went through all their things and, and they went through all of their purification. In verse 15, he says, and now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of them that looked on her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus and to his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. I mean, the types that God puts in here is just unreal. In Revelations 10.7, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound. It's about that time that God used to say, I got a real bride that's not going to be ashamed of me. He says, and the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in, the sight, in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all the princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. Esther didn't throw her own feast. The king threw Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Hallelujah. Out of all the women, all the virgins and all the beauty and all the extra stuff the women could put on to adorn themselves. No matter how pretty or how sexy dressed or how extravagantly dressed they were, he chose the one who took only what his servant knew he liked. No more, no less. Hallelujah. Oh, yes, we got some of them in the message. Some sexy dress message believers. It's all right, I can get quiet. Spiritually, I mean. I'm not talking about natural dress code right now. I'm talking about spiritual dress code. Wow, yeah. Ones that believe, oh yeah, there's only one God. Yes, Brother Branham was a prophet of God. Yes, I believe baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe in the serpent seed. Therefore, I'm saved. You've barely got enough to cover your private areas. Yeah. Forgive me for saying it this way, but I need to make a straight a spiritual bikini. Yeah. Wow. Taking the word of God and just covering up just enough. The king's not looking for that. He's not looking for someone who just takes the basics. I'll just take the ABCs. No, he says, the Pentecostals couldn't even get the ABCs, but he says, I want to take you into the deep riches of God. And I want to say it this way too. There's also the extravagantly dressed ones. The one that everything is so deep in the mysteries of God. Until the simplicity of Christ is so far forgotten. Because it becomes everything's got a mystery and a depth to it. Because if you don't understand the intricacies of numerology and you're unable to tie the message in the scripture from Genesis to Revelation 47 to 65 and put it all together, you're lost. i got to be extravagantly dressed. Don't you understand what the lights are and the foundations and oh my goodness, the capstone and oh, we got to put it all in there. That's all parts of it. But if you just take all the flamboyancy. But missing the grace of God. Can't see the blood of Jesus applied to the believer's heart. When God has clothed you with zeal. As a cloak to accomplish his word his word will not return unto him void. God is a jealous God. He's jealous over you with a godly jealousy that you would manifest the word for your day. No more and no less. The king has laid out and confirmed it with a sign. We talked about the message. He confirmed it. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I want you to wear. The message is what I like. This is what I find acceptable. I'm not going to accept something else just because you like it. I'm not going to accept the church based on the fact it's got the nicest music. Where they shout the most, or they they dance the most, or they go on the most. No, because I'm looking for someone that can receive the word that I sent through my messenger, and they're willing to be clothed with that word for their day. That's what I'm looking for. Many will come in that day, he says, and say, Lord, Lord, have not we done many mighty miracles, mighty works in thy name? And he will say, I never even knew you. Let me say this, we don't need to produce the works of William Branham. The works that he produced was there to point to the message. Yeah. We don't need to go back to that and say, well, we need speaking in tongues every service, and we need, we need you know, prophecy every service. We need this every service. We need that. Every, we need a prayer line all the time, and we need altar calls all the time. No, what we need is the truth ministered and the truth received into a heart that's able to bring forth what it was meant to bring forth. He says it so plainly, so plainly in spoken word as the original seed when he says, Listen, if you plant wheat crop, you're gonna harvest wheat crop. If you plant cucumbers, you're not gonna harvest wheat. No matter how much you sit there and try and pray, it's wheat. If you don't plant wheat, you ain't gonna get wheat. You have to plant wheat to get wheat. You've got to stay in the word to get the word. You've got to be able to be impregnated. He says, stay a chaste virgin so he can put his word in you so he can produce the word. So many types that we won't have time to get to that we could go into, oh my. Go into the time of purification and all this. Thing, you know, there's so much... But listen, we've received a message. We're seated now at Esther's feast. We didn't spread this table, he did. He gave the prophet a vision, say store up good vegetables. Put them in the storehouse. There's a bride to come that's gonna need it. We We didn't put it in there, he put it in there. But we're in there eating it. And there's so much in there. Let me tell you this. Don't worry about running out. You're just a mouse in the garners of Egypt. You're just a fish in a giant ocean. You ain't gonna run out of water. The open book which reveals the Son of Man right now, not future tense, right now, walking in the midst of his church. Because she's acceptable to him. The second coming of Christ is not a corporal coming. It's a spiritual coming. That he comes to inhabit a bride and take her away. Because there comes a point when you become so much like Christ, you can't live on this sinful world anymore. That's when the body change happens. Because he can't, in a physical body... Touch this sinful world until it's burnt over with fire. So when we become so much like him that we can't live in this sinful environment anymore, then we'll have to step from time into eternity because we can't live here any longer. That's when she is him. She becomes flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, life of his life, spirit of his spirit, word of his word. You go down, he preaches it, and and this is the rising of the sun. He says, but I'm a member by grace of the body of Christ. I love the way Brother Branham says that. Because he could say it just like Paul. If anyone could brag about signs and wonders, I'm more. Great. Great. Wow. If anyone could talk about vindication, I'm more. If anyone could talk about their place in the scripture where it literally talks about them, I'm more. Yeah. But by grace... I'm a part of the body of Christ. Amen. I'm your brother. He says, I have no selfish motives. My motive to achieve anything personally, he says, I am only zealous for the Lord God to say this with all my heart the very thing that you were called out of, you've gone back into again. So that must have been 1956 he preached that. No, that was November of 1965. 63. Sorry, November of 1963. After the seals were opened, the Bible said, "As the sow goes back to her wallow, the dog to its vomit." Oh my, he says. He says, "We got an organization and creeds that had got the people all bound up, and God called you out of it to be a free people, and you turned right back around and done the same thing again. It's a greater sin." Listen to this next statement. He says, Now they had him doing tricks to entertain them. And that's just about the way it's got instead of a Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord. We desire, as as, as believers, and it's good, we want the healing. By his stripes, I'm healed. We want a good feeling. We don't want to go to church with our heads hung down. We want to go away feeling better. We want the mysteries of God revealed in our midst. We like the promises, and those things are good, but what about living a holy, consecrated, separated life? Completely separated from the things of the world. Preachers messages, God's word calls for a total, complete abandonment to God. It calls for a total separation from unbelief from the things of the world. I want to ask you, has it begun to creep back in? We had a first generation. Many of them have passed on now. A pastor would be part of a second generation. Those that were born, well, Brother Branham was still alive, just like it was coming out of Egypt. There was those that were there that, in the coming out, but there were those that were born in the wilderness. I'm a part of something called the third generation. I'm raising a fourth generation. I recognize the weight of what I'm doing. The cooling off. Laodicea has a lukewarm spirit. They like certain parts of the hot, and they like certain parts of the cold. But when you take it and you put it together, it creates a lukewarm. You're not trying to be lukewarm, but you like the, the, the wonderful blessings, the outpouring, the great, wonderful things of God, the stirring of the Holy Spirit, but you also like on Monday and Tuesday that you can just kind of live a little bit, relaxed in any way you like, and not really be in the presence of God, and you can listen to your same old music, and listen to your same old podcast, and listen to your same old things, and read your same old books anymore, and do the same things you've always wanted to do, instead of having a complete abandonment to God, because rather than that, you like that cold, and when you put it together, you end up with a lukewarm in the sight of God, when Paul said, don't be commendable by man be commendable by God as we're raising a fourth generation have we allowed the fervency in the home to die down that devotions become when we have time do we still sit with our children I'm talking right now, to the young parents that are raising, young children, my children's age. As to you, I want you to listen closely. Do we still sit them on our knees and begin to describe to them what the message is? Do we still tell them of the glorious things that God did through Brother Branham and what He did through Brother Harold, and what He did now and what we're doing today and why the Holy Spirit is still moving? Do we begin to explain it to them? Or do we just put them to bed and say, "Just just go away?" I got my own entertainments to go be a part of. I got my own things I got going on. Do we teach them to pray? Do we sit with them on the message? I'm always amazed. I used to have generations before me that you, when they came into the message, they would sit for hours on a Monday night and listen to a message with their children. Oh God, we don't do that anymore. We rely on the church. We become too busy. We get caught up in the race. Dual income and daycares. To we're not concerned about what our children are learning anymore and reading things they ought not to read, looking at things they ought not to look at. To we'll put a TV in our home so they can watch a little show that isn't all that harmless. Forgive me, this is just burning in my heart. I have to just say it the way it is because I don't want to be responsible in the end for not saying it. Do we lay awake at night and cry for the abominations done in the city? Do your children see you pray? Do your children see you weep? And cry out for what's going on in the church and begin to pray and have a burden? Do we search our hearts on a daily basis? Or do we just rely on coming to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night? Our children will hear it then. Or do we sit them down at night and say, but do you listen to the message?" See, well, I tried. I, I gave them a message book and they wouldn't read it. No, sit them down. Yeah. You're their Holy Ghost until they get their Holy Ghost. Sit them down and play a tape. Amen. Are we too busy to wash Jesus' feet? Did we invite him into our homes and put him in a corner? Say, watch us play Uno. Watch us play life. Watch us play NHL. Put whatever game you want in there. I don't care. Do we put them in the corner and say, "We'll get to you"? We got 15 minutes for devotions at the end of the night. Let me tell you something that just made my heart leap for joy. One time, my dad was down, and we were having devotions, and. We had devotions with the kids and afterwards we put the kids to bed and looked at the watch. Room. My dad said, wow, do you usually have devotions for an hour and a bit with the kids? I said, I try to. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but I try to. For an hour, Brother Andrew, they're just children. Let them watch them, let them have fun. What's more important? Then taking my children onto my knee and teaching them the ways of God and beginning to impart to them the ways of life or do we just, are we just interested in the Lord Jesus doing tricks? That one day they'll go to a camp service and they'll get a hold of God. That might not be the God you want them to get a hold of because I've seen it too many times where you go from camp service to camp service to camp service to camp service to convention to convention and they constantly getting experiences with God when in reality all they got was an experience with an evangelistic preacher. But When they come home, they sit on the front pew like a dead bump on a log and they refuse to pull. Why? Because it wasn't real. He says there ought to be a holy power surrounding and in the church that will make demons flee. In the message thirst, he says wait till that satisfaction comes. The satisfaction portion of the fullness of the Holy Ghost comes in. Then these joy bells of shouting and speaking in tongues and dancing in the spirit will come. Oh, praise be to God. In the next statement, he says it this way. And You won't do it by the music. Glory! It won't be an emotional workup anymore. And well, when the drums are playing, then we'll have a great time and we'll be able to get up and dance. But when the word's being preached, but the man takes it farther, he says, When you're going down the road in your car, when you're sweeping the floor when you're putting a nail in doing your carpentry work let that be the joy unspeakable full of glory something in you welling up that you can't help but rejoice because it's a real living separated holy consecrated life we need to go back to the heart of worship where it's all about him it's all about Jesus let's stand to our feet I trust you're with me this morning. I'm not interested in the Holy Spirit just doing tricks. Just performing great things for us. I want it in me. I want to live it on Monday and Tuesday. I want the Holy Ghost in me. I love it when I listen to services and I listen to two, three, four messages in a day and just absolutely love it. I was just in a basement on Thursday. Thursday, yeah, Thursday. I was just in a basement and I was just... Actually, I felt like I need to watch something, so I was watching The Chosen. I felt like I I just had a play in there while I was in He was calling. He went and healed that man by the pool of Bethesda, and there was Jesse. They called him Jesse. Right at that time, there was Nathaniel coming through and seeing him carrying his bed. I just started shouting. I didn't care. I was in somebody's basement. I started jumping around. Glory be to God. Why? Because he knew that there was somebody about to lose their life. God's never too late. God is never too late. He always knows exactly what He's doing. He's always on time. Amen. Praise be to God. He knew exactly where Nathaniel was at. He knew exactly where Simon the Zealot was at. He knew exactly what was going on. Oh, whether it happened the way or not, I don't care. But it means something to me. Amen. I'm not interested in God just doing tricks. I want the power of the Holy Ghost surrounding this building, surrounding every believer, till demons have to flee. Amen. Demons aren't welcome here anymore. Amen. So, around you, how that's going to happen, we better start shouting more. No, it might be the quietest service you've ever been in Amen. that the demons flee. Amen. We better sing better. No, we might not have very good singers. That doesn't matter, even though we got some of the best in the message as far as I'm concerned. But it doesn't matter how good the singing is or how high the shouting is or how good the dancing is. What matters is that we receive the word of God. Amen. And as much as we freely receive, freely give. Don't let that jealous spirit get in you. Well, it's for me, me, me. No, give it back out again. Give it to your children. Give it to your children's children. Grandparents, take your grandchildren on your lap. Take them on your knee. Teach them the ways of God talk to them about the Lord. Don't just read them story books they got from the library. Pick up your Bible with them and say, but did you see this story of Goliath and David? Say, oh, but they've read Goliath and David so many times. Read it to them again. Maybe it'll become a reality to them that that Goliath, that child's facing, they can overcome it too. It's not to be our everything, our complete abandonment to God. Brother, you have a song on your heart.
0: Spirit of God, move. <laughs> Spirit of God, move, write your word on my heart, fill my whole being, consume my life. life. Spirit of God, move, an empty vessel I want you, so that Can't so live in this world anymore. So He's God. I he wants you more than anything else. Live jealous God over you.